From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, September 19th. I'm Aaron Schachter. France beefs up security after a Paris magazine publishes cartoons guaranteed to offend many Muslims. We'll hear the details. Also, what the Peace Corps taught the late Ambassador Chris Stevens. And later, a Taiwanese businessman in Oregon angers China with a mural. It depicts human rights abuses in Tibet. One of the pictures is a Chinese police is beating a monk. It's a tremendous human suffering. I feel I got to speak out. I cannot just keep silence myself. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter and this is The World. France is on high alert today. That's after a Paris-based satirical magazine published cartoons making fun of the prophet Mohammed. This comes at a tense moment. This past week has seen protests in Muslim countries against an amateurish video made in the U.S. ridiculing the prophet. The U.S. ambassador to Libya and three other Americans were killed during one such protest. Today, the White House questioned the magazine's decision to publish the Mohammed cartoons, though not its right to do it. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. The latest issue of the French magazine Charlie Hebdo not only mocks Mohammed, it also makes fun of recent anti-American protests over the online video that mocks Mohammed. Stéphane Charbonnier is Charlie Hebdo's editor. He told the BBC that just as with the Danish caricatures of Mohammed back in 2005, it's his right even duty, to publish these 20 cartoons, offensive or not. He says if we start saying we can't do these cartoons because there's a risk someone will be shocked, then we'll back down from publishing other cartoons because there will always be pressure for something less offensive, and so on and so on, until we stop making cartoons altogether. Charlie Hebdo has been lampooning all sorts of people for over 20 years, Name someone famous or iconic, and chances are they've been skewered. The Pope, Jesus Christ, politicians of all stripes, and, once again, Mohammed. This isn't any more of a provocation than usual, said Charbonnier. It depends on who's on the other side, on who's reading. I don't think that our regular readers are shocked. I think people who don't read us, they're shocked when they see the paper. Charlie Hebdo's Mohammed caricatures run from mild political jabs to vulgar depictions of the prophet naked. The head of the Grand Mosque of Paris, Dalil Baboukar, says that someone would create and publish such images is beyond comprehension. It goes against normal reasoning, he says, and it's an abdication of responsibility. The French government has sent riot police to protect the Paris offices of Charlie Hebdo, Overseas, French officials have a wary eye on this Friday's Muslim prayers and the possibility that protests could erupt.
J'ai donné instruction après en avoir discuté avec France's foreign minister Laurent Fabius said today he's implemented special security measures in countries where this could pose a problem. France is temporarily closing schools and embassies in some 20 countries. Fabius says this shows that it's very dangerous and sometimes irresponsible when we note the general climate to pour, as they say, oil on the fire. Fabius was referring to the sometimes violent protests against the U.S. and other Western countries over the recent online video depicting Mohammed as a dolt and a womanizer. But other French officials are insisting that though the caricatures may be offensive and may provoke protest, they're not illegal. After a meeting with French Muslim leaders in Paris, Interior Minister Manuel Valls told reporters that caricatures, even of Mohammed, are protected by the fundamental right to free expression, even if they're shocking. If anyone wants to pursue the matter, he said, we have the courts. Many Muslims around the world have condemned the use of violence to respond to insults. This, even as Islamic extremists in some places are trying to stir up Muslim anger and use it to their political advantage. This isn't limited to the Muslim world, though. Today in France, Marine Le Pen, the leader of France's far-right National Front, said Charlie Hebdo embodied French values. She used the opportunity to invite anyone who doesn't agree to leave France now. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. We have a different set of cartoons to show you. They're by cartoonists around the globe who've been exploring freedom of speech and how it relates to the recent protests over the anti-Islam video we've been hearing so much about. We have that slideshow at theworld.org. Now, given all the anger and protests sweeping the Mideast, you might be surprised to hear about an ad campaign that's about to run in 10 New York City subway stations. The ads are the work of the American Freedom Defense Initiative, the group that fought against a mosque near Ground Zero. The message, adapted from an Ayn Rand lecture, reads like this. In any war between the civilized man and the savage, support the civilized man. It concludes, support Israel, defeat jihad. The words are wedged between two stars of David. The Metropolitan Transit Authority in New York didn't want to put up the ads, but a court said it must. Jim O'Grady is a reporter for WNYC's Transportation Nation. Jim, why can't the MTA decide what it wants to put on uh, subway stations or buses? Because a judge has ruled that the MTA's policy of prohibiting what it calls demeaning speech in non-commercial ads on subways and buses and throughout the system is unconstitutional. That had been the reason the MTA gave for rejecting these ads, but a court has decided that is not a good enough reason because it was it goes offensive up against the First Amendment. The, the MTA said it was offensive. Yeah, specifically demeaning. And it cited the word savages as the, the objectionable term. But the MTA has, in New York, has uh, run issue ads before, some of them uh, controversial. They allowed a religious group called Muslims for Peace to run an ad on 90 public buses that said, Muslims for Peace, love for all, hatred for none. The MTA decided that that was not demeaning. They ran an ad by an atheist group that said, a million New Yorkers are good without God, are you? Some people would be offended by that. The MTA decided the speech itself was not demeaning. So the MTA has been making these judgment calls all along, and a court recently said, no more judgment calls, MTA. If a group pays for an ad with an issue, you have to run it. All or nothing, basically. Yeah, and that is why the MTA is now considering for the first time at its board meeting next week changing its policy about issue ads and um, not accepting them anymore. 
and deciding to only accept commercial ads. Now, this same ad campaign has already run in San Francisco, and the Transit Authority there took the unusual step of denouncing the ads. It ran them on buses, but it denounced them and put huge disclaimers next to the ad, you know, saying basically we disavow the message that is here on our buses. Could the MTA in New York decide to do the same thing? The MTA in New York has decided to not do that. You're right. The um, ads in San Francisco were accompanied by huge ads with an arrow pointing at the issue ad saying, we don't agree with this. New York MTA has decided they're not going to do that. They feel like their very public fight in court against showing these ads has demonstrated their distaste for the message on the ads. I wonder at this moment in time if the argument has been made by the MTA, the the Transit Authority in New York, that it's just a dangerous thing to do right now to run these ads. You know, the MTA is not saying that, but critics of the ads are certainly saying that. And a little bit about the group that is paying for these ads. It's called the American Freedom Defense Initiative. And a woman named Pamela Geller is behind this group. They are devoted to provoking a conversation about the nature of Islam through public statements. Pamela Geller says she thought about pulling this ad in light of unrest in the Islamic world around the globe, but she decided this is my issue. And in her way of framing the issue, she says she's not going to be intimidated. Jim O'Grady with WNYC's Transportation Nation. Great to speak with you. Thanks. Same here. Thank you. The issue of free speech and sensibilities is also on display in Corvallis, Oregon. Corvallis is a usually quiet college town of about 55,000, but recently it got some international attention for a large mural that Chinese officials found offensive. D. May Roberts reports from Corvallis. David Lin is a Taiwanese-American businessman. He used to run his technology business in this building in Corvallis. Now he's turning the building into a restaurant, at least when he isn't greeting a stream of visitors every day, visitors like Nicole Martin. I think that this is probably one of the most beautiful murals I've seen in such a long time, and it really did move me to tears. And don't, don't take it down. Please don't take it down. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What Martin doesn't want removed is a 10-by-100-foot mural painted above the windows and doors of Lin's building. The mural depicts scenes of violence in Tibet and declarations of Taiwanese freedom. David Lin got inspired to do this when a friend showed him photos of monks in Tibet protesting against China. One of the pictures is the police is harass a monk, and the other picture is the Chinese police is beating a monk. It's a tremendous human suffering. I feel I got to speak out. I cannot just keep silence myself. Lin wanted to make an international statement not only about Tibet, but his concerns for Taiwan, where he grew up. So Lin got all the city permits he needed for a mural. On a recent trip to Taiwan, Lin met Taiwanese artist Zhao Tsung Song and paid for him to fly over and paint during the summer. Almost immediately, the mural drew attention. On the right side are pastoral scenes of Taiwan. Nearby lanterns float to the sky with messages of independence written in Chinese. On the left side of the mural, a graphic image of self-emulation by Tibetan monks. So this is obviously the people burn and sell to give you the strongest protest to the, to the China government, okay? And next one is the three Chinese police try to harass a monk. Then last month at City Hall, just a block away from the mural, Corvallis Mayor Julie Manning got a letter. 
It came from the Chinese Consulate General in San Francisco. The letter stated that the mural, quote, caused strong resentment from the local Chinese community and Chinese students in Corvallis. There was an expression of concern for the the mural and what was depicted there and a request that we as local government take some sort of action. The desired action, according to the letter, was to urge the city to, quote, stop the activities advocating so-called Tibet and Taiwan independence. The letter urged the mayor to, quote, avoid our precious friendship from being tainted. Mayor Manning traded emails with the Chinese consulate that led to two consulate representatives flying in from San Francisco for a meeting. We talked about the artistic expression and how that is an element of the First Amendment of the Constitution and how we really did not view that there was a role for local government in this particular regard because the property owner was not violating any laws. Corvallis City Manager Jim Patterson was at the meeting, too. He was surprised it turned into a lesson in American freedom of expression. One of the representatives offered to us that he had, in fact, been educated in Washington, D.C., so it just caused me a brief moment to scratch my head that we were still then having the conversation. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden and Congressman Peter DeFazio have both publicly blasted the Chinese diplomats for their lack of familiarity with the U.S. Constitution. And so far, the Chinese consulate has not responded to requests for a comment. Mayor Manning says members of the Chinese community in Corvallis have shown support for the city's stand. She's also received positive emails from all over the world, many from people of Chinese descent. In just last weekend, members of the Northwest Tibetan Cultural Association held a ceremonial event at David Lin's mural. They placed traditional scarves at the site to show respect for the mural's message. For The World, I'm Dime Roberts, Corvallis, Oregon. If you want to see the mural that brought Chinese diplomats to Corvallis, we have photos. It's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. A once-sunken treasure emerges in today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for a river that begins up in the Carpathian Mountains of Central Europe. It's Poland's longest river, and it's quickly becoming one of Poland's shallowest rivers. Water levels are as low as anyone can remember thanks to a long-running drought. The dried-up riverbed has revealed some surprises, some unexploded World War II ordnance, a few broken Jewish gravestones, and now some rare marble carvings. The carvings and stonework were stolen from Polish palaces more than 350 years ago. We'll hear more about the loot at the bottom of this Polish river in a few minutes. Many stores in India are planning to be closed tomorrow. They're shutting down to protest the Indian government's decision last week to open the country to big Western retailers like Walmart. Last year, Indian leaders backtracked on a similar plan amid fierce opposition. Now each of India's individual states will decide whether to let big box stores in. Christopher Wirth traveled to India with help from the International Reporting Project and sent us this story. 
The debate over the likes of Walmart in India raises the same question you often hear in the U.S. Is there enough room for big multinational retailers and little guys like Anamash Haldar? Haldar and his brothers have sold fruit and vegetables from this street-side stall in Delhi for 15 years. And as they weigh out handfuls of tomatoes, Haldar says he's no match for big box stores from the U.S. and Europe. If Walmart and other corporations start selling fruits and vegetables like us, we'll lose our business. Haldar has joined an association of other vendors to pressure the Indian government to keep large foreign competitors out of India. But it will be a fight. For multinational companies, the Indian retail sector is worth an estimated $450 billion. And Kaushik Basu, an economist and advisor to the Indian government, welcomes them. He says while some traders might lose out in the short run, in the long run, all Indians will benefit from the overall growth that foreign retailers will bring. My expectation is that get this right and India's retail sector will increase in such leaps and bounds that even if the profit margin is thinner, there will be more aggregate profit. And that will have a very, very big positive effect on the economy. And Basu says the introduction of big supermarkets could help India solve a long-standing problem. That is, how to get more of the money consumers spend on food into the hands of impoverished Indian farmers. The gap between the price that farmers get and the price that consumers pay in India is disproportionately large. How do you correct this? It's hard. To understand why, he says, consider how those tomatoes make their way to Haldar's stall through India's inefficient supply chain of middlemen. Nirupama Sandara Rajan is with the Federation of India's Chambers of Commerce and Industry. She says, first, you have the farmer. So the farmer, on the day that he decides to sell his produce, there is a transporter. The farmer pays the transporter to get his goods to market. At that point, you have what is known as a commission agent. Who acts as a sort of broker. The farmer has to pay typically 10% to the commission agent for the sale of the produce. Then, she says, the produce is sold to a wholesaler. Then the wholesaler sells it to a retailer, and then the retailer sells it to the consumer. So you're looking at five stages of transfer. And at each stage, someone takes a cut. But, Sandara Rajan says, with the more direct supply chains used by big retailers, farmers could keep 30 to 40 percent more profit by skipping all those middlemen. The farmers do make a lot more money, largely because there is no transportation fee that is paid and there is no commission that is charged. And, Sandara Rajan says, farmers will benefit from foreign investments in refrigerated transport and storage facilities. It's completely a myth that farmers will receive more. But back in Delhi... Darmendra Kumar of the group FDI Watch disagrees. He says once farmers are dependent on a few large companies, they'll be squeezed by the ever lower prices that big retailers demand. Once you organize it in a corporatized kind of supply chain, you have Walmart making people dependent on their supply chain, which is not sustainable. Andy says the change could spell an end to many of the 12 million small shops and the millions of jobs they create that make up India's bustling economy. Walmart didn't respond to a request for comment for this story. The company already has a presence in India's wholesale sector. The new rules would allow it and other foreign companies to take a 51 percent stake in India's retail trade. And not every small shop owner is opposed. 
Vital Shinoy sells traditional Indian sweets from this small storefront in Mumbai. He welcomes the chance to go head-to-head with Walmart because he says what he sells is better. People sell their own taste, no? If they're like that, they're going there. People have their own taste, Shinoy says. If they like Walmart, so be it. But I think they'll like our product more, no doubt about it. For The World, I'm Christopher Wirth, Delhi, India. Now to answer our geo-quiz today, we're going to turn to Matthew Day in the Polish capital, Warsaw. He writes today in London's Telegraph newspaper about the sunken treasure that's turning up in the river that runs past Warsaw. Matthew, take me to the river. Well, what's turned up in the beautiful river Vistula that runs through the Polish capital are tons and tons of ornate stonework and carvings and even a fountain, I'm told, that disappeared into the river 350 years ago when it was on a boat being taken up the river by Swedish invaders and people think that the the Swedish invaders overloaded the boat with other valuable things they'd stolen from the poles and the boat sank and it disappeared for hundreds of years but now the Vistula is at its lowest level people say for about 200 years and the treasure has been revealed for everybody to see. So that Swedish invasion that you mentioned of Poland was in 1655. Is this the kind of thing that every Pole knows about? Well, the Poles are very familiar with the Swedish invasion, like Henryk Sienkiewicz, who is one of the most famous Polish authors. He's like a national author in Poland, and every Polish family will have a book by Sienkiewicz on their bookshelves. He wrote a book called The Deluge about the invasion. One of the aspects of The Deluge, the invasion, of 1655 is that the Swedes, they just went through Poland with a fine-tooth comb. Paintings, works of art, cups and plates and things like that. Your standard treasure. But what's interesting about this uh, find in the river, on the riverbed, is that it shows just how enthusiastic they were about their looting. They didn't just take all the the gold and the silver and the ornate artwork. They even took stone carvings, piece of stonework. Apparently they cut them up so they could be reassembled later in Sweden, like uh, like Lego, more or less. And there is this letter, a Swedish letter, dating from 1656, talking about how a, a barge sank on the Vistula River near Warsaw. So there's documentary evidence that you know there had been an accident and that something had sunk, and they had retrieved the odd item in the past. But this is the first time they've actually had a really good look at all the objects that they can find. You can have a look at these objects uh, and photos at theworld.org. London Telegraph newspaper reporter Matthew Day in Warsaw, not far from the Vistula River. That is the answer to our geo-quiz today. Matthew, thank you so much. Well, thank you. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, Saudi Arabia's elderly royals face an uncertain future, and that worries their subjects. They say when elephants fight, the grass gets crushed, and they're worried about the family not being able to hold together during a transition from the old sons of the founder to a grandson. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. China's leader-in-waiting, Xi Jinping, held his first talks with a foreign official since vanishing from the public eye nearly two weeks ago. He met with U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta today. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. Mary Kay, before we get into what the two men discussed, as we said, she hasn't been seen in, in public in two weeks. Where was he? Do we know? We have no idea. We just know that he gave Leon Panetta a firm handshake and a big smile and said he thought the meeting would be very helpful in furthering ties between the U.S. and China. Leon Panetta said later that she seemed to him to be very healthy and very engaged. And if you want to learn more about what happened to him, you'd better ask him. Mary Kay, what was on the agenda uh, when Panetta met Xi Jinping? Well, something that was certainly front and center in everyone's minds is the tensions that have been basically escalating in recent days between China and Japan over islands that both countries claim. Japan calls them the Senkaku Islands. China calls them the the Diaoyu Islands. And there have been several days of protests in Beijing and in other cities around China. Now, while these have been in many cases organized by either the government or by entities uh, that are close to the government, such as the Communist Youth League. They have at times gotten violent. They've caused several Japanese companies to either suspend or close operations. And there have been rather bellicose statements made. When Leon Panetta met yesterday with Chinese Defense Minister Liang Guanglia, Liang Guanglia said that China may yet take further action against Japan. Leon Panetta's response was that the United States is urging calm and restraint by all sides. There's a little bit of an irony to this because this is what China always says when it comes to, say, Iran's (laughs) nuclear buildup. As you say, the demonstrations have gotten violent. Frighteningly so, I I would think, in a couple instances. We've seen quotes from people saying, you know, we should go to war with Japan. That'll show them. Is this just blowing off steam or is this a, a big deal? Somewhere in between, I think. Um, When you have protests that are somewhat orchestrated by the Chinese government, as these have been, it's to send a message to the Japanese government and indirectly to the U.S. government as well. The Chinese state-run media have been saying, you know, the U.S. has no business interfering in this bilateral dispute. Of course, the U.S. does because the U.S. has a mutual defense treaty with Japan. I think the Chinese leadership knows that once everything cools down a little bit, it's really not in China's interest in the middle of a leadership transition with a slowing economy to actually get into a physical conflict with Japan. However, uh, it has always been expected that when the economy slows and there's some sort of political internal dispute, that the government could always turn to playing the nationalist card. Mm-hmm. Because the Communist Party's legitimacy these days comes not from communism, but from economic growth and from defending China's honor in the world. And if the economy is slowing, then there's the other option of playing the nationalist card. And that seems to be what's happening. Is there a way out of this stalemate that you can see with both sides maintaining their honor? Well, if you go back three decades or so, former leader Deng Xiaoping, when asked about the islands on a visit to Japan said, look, we're going to leave this issue for wiser heads than ours to resolve in future generations. And for many years, that's what China and Japan did. And ironically, this year was supposed to be the friendship year of Japan-China people-to-people exchanges, celebrating 40 years of diplomatic ties. The fact that 
this issue has become so tense all of a sudden can't really be divorced from everything else that's going on in China right now. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Mary Kay, thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Defense Secretary Panetta also spoke today about tensions in Afghanistan. He touched on the issue of attacks by Afghan soldiers on coalition soldiers, so-called green-on-blue attacks. They've been on the rise since President Obama announced a drawdown of forces. This year, 51 international service members have died at the hands of Afghan forces or militants wearing their uniforms. The world's Arun Roth has more. At a press conference last month, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta almost wrote off the green-on-blue attacks as a sign of the Taliban's desperation in the face of coalition gains in Afghanistan. The reality is the Taliban has not been able to regain any territory lost. And so they're resorting to these kinds of attacks to uh, create havoc. But by the Pentagon's own estimate, only about 10 percent of green-on-blue attacks involve Taliban infiltration. Since almost all the attackers are killed, it's difficult to determine a motive. But the overwhelming majority of Afghans who turn against the International Security Assistance Force, or ISAF, apparently make the decision to do so on their own. For many observers, that's scarier than Taliban infiltration. It's very, very worrying because it implies a level of mistrust and suspicion between the Afghan population, security forces, and the international troops, which is is very extreme and disturbing. Rory Stewart is a conservative member of the British Parliament who has traveled extensively through Afghanistan. He says tensions often grow from cultural conflicts, whether subtle offenses from tone of voice, eating and drinking boisterously during the day during Ramadan, or more overt disrespect. And such slights and misunderstandings are inevitable. The longer you're there, in a sense, the more tensions, the more mistrust, the more suspicion builds up. I've been in Afghanistan on and off now for 10 years, and I speak an Afghan language, but I'm still capable of causing offense without intending to because I've misunderstood the context of a situation. I think it's not realistic to expect that you could train 120,000 foreign soldiers to have ideal diplomatic skills. If the cultural problems weren't intractable enough, there are other profound problems that are pushing Afghan soldiers and police to the breaking point. Candice Rondeau is the International Crisis Group's senior analyst based in Kabul. She says frequently green-on-blue attacks are precipitated by green-on-green conflicts. One of the things that really complicates the situation is that um, relations between Afghan rank-and-file soldiers and police and their commanders are often very fraught. Uh, There are factions at work, political factions, within the military services, within the police, uh, that make it very difficult for the average Afghan soldier uh, to get along, get his salary, uh, and do his job without interference. And I think... That is something that ISAF still has to grapple with, is the political implications um, of this kind of factionalism that seems to be arising and seems to be driving some of the insider attacks. All that stress, combined with the trauma of combat, can make for a volatile mix. But what we don't often hear about is, is just the low morale uh, that comes from being on the front lines every day. Uh, some of these guys sign up for three-year contracts, and they're in places like Helmand and, and Kandahar, uh, and they're under a great deal of stress. Rondo says the spike in green-on-blue attacks could be directly related to the increase in fighting since the 2009 surge. That means Afghan soldiers and ISAF soldiers are going out there much more often on the battlefield. Um, they're encountering you know, a lot more um, you know, serious firefights. The stress levels are very high. There is no discussion of PTSD in Afghanistan. 
In fact, Rondo says there is a strict taboo about discussing that sort of vulnerability. Coalition forces have announced, in the wake of the increased green-on-blue violence, that they are revamping and improving the vetting process for Afghan soldiers and police. But it's hard to imagine how they could screen for these kinds of issues. And given the demographics of the force, Rory Stewart says it's misleading to even talk about vetting. This is a, a very, very rough and ready, hurried attempt to try to build up a massive Afghan security force essentially often out of illiterate villages, and therefore I think vetting is is completely unrealistic. The ISAF commanders in Afghanistan may have come to the same conclusion. On Monday, General John Allen ordered that joint patrols with Afghan and ISAF forces be suspended until further notice. The new arrangement may protect U.S. forces, but it may not work out as well for the Afghan forces now going on patrol alone. For The World, I'm Arun Roth. Saudi Arabia is a nation on the brink of change. The kingdom is ruled by an aging royal family, and there's no set roadmap for passing the baton to a younger generation of leaders. How this transition is shaping up is the subject of a new book called On Saudi Arabia. It's by Karen Elliott House. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's been covering Saudi Arabia for 30 years. House says many Saudis are worried that change could bring instability. Saudis are very dependent on their government for livelihood. And if they think their government may not be there, it worries them. They want a efficient, honest government that provides them with well-being. And they are worried that the old rulers now who have an average age above 80 are simply too out of touch. So it's it's not necessarily that people in Saudi Arabia want democracy. They want stability. Is that it? They want a bigger share of the oil revenue. The population in the kingdom has literally exploded over the last 30 years. So you have nearly 20 million Saudis, and the lifestyle has declined as the population has increased, and people know that the oil revenue is still enormous, and they say, I want my share. I wonder if there's a discrepancy between the old and the young. I mean, in the past, the royals have ruled backed by religious authority. And I wonder if you find that the new generation is questioning the system, both of the strict religious rulers controlling things and the monarchy. The young people are questioning Absolutely everything, because thanks to the Internet, the Al Saud regime is not able to control what Saudis know any longer. So their ability to use religion to legitimize whatever they decide to do has sharply diminished. Even the young religious students at Imam University, their premier religious university, When I met with young men from that university, you ask them, what religious leader do you turn to for guidance? And they say, I don't. I read the Quran and decide myself. I mean, in a country like Saudi Arabia, that's absolute heresy, you know, that you're not listening to the religious establishment. That sounds a little bit shocking and uh, maybe from a, a Western perspective, a little bit hopeful. I think it is hopeful when people start to use their own minds. I mean, I know a lot of Americans think that 
the Arab Spring has left us worse off in the Middle East as a whole, I firmly believe it has left us better off because Arabs are going to have to start, whether in Egypt or Tunisia or Syria or even ultimately Saudi Arabia, they are going to have to start taking responsibility for their decisions and their lives and stop blaming other people. The real problem, I'm convinced, of on the Arab street, if you say, why do they, quote, hate us? I don't believe they do hate America. I believe they are frustrated because all of these countries have enormous numbers of now educated and unemployed youth. Hmm. Now, Saudi Arabia quelled its own version of the Arab Spring groundswell basically by paying people off. With this issue coming back to the fore with the the protests over the movie and so on, do you think Saudi Arabia will escape the unrest that uh, we see on our television screens now? I personally think it won't, but I think that's a few years away because the the government did try to buy peace. $130 billion the king passed out when the annual budget of the country this past year was 180. So it was almost a doubling of the kingdom's budget. The problem with that is that once you give people something, it's very difficult to take it back. Right. They expect it. Um, they expect it. So the government has vastly increased its expenses. And yes, oil brings them a lot of money, but uh, there is a very well-grounded financial institution called JADWA that estimates that by 2014, the government spending will exceed oil revenue. And the kingdom gets almost all of its revenue, 90% of its revenue from oil. In your book, you point out that um, the old regime needs to uh, hand over the reins of power to the the younger folks. Is that something you can foresee happening smoothly? I think it will be very difficult for the royal family to make the generational change smoothly because they don't have agreement on how to do it. So the safest thing is to continue to pass it from one elderly brother to another and the kingdom may destabilize during that process. Do any of them seem to know how precarious things are? I think the older ones, by and large, I mean, Crown Prince Salman, when I talked to him, he said, we can't have democracy here because every tribe would be a party, and then we'd just have chaos. So we aim for consensus. We consult. And when the people we consult with don't agree, we decide... (laughs) which is a a great way of saying we have consultation as a cover for us doing what we want to. But increasingly people know that it's kind of like in this country where the Republicans and the Democrats blame each other. Congress can't cooperate, so we can't do anything. Increasingly, Americans and Saudis know that it is up to their leaders to figure out how to solve those things. Karen Elliott House is the author of On Saudi Arabia. By the way, the question, why do they still hate us, is coming up a lot these days. You can hear more of what House had to say about that and read my blog post on the subject. That's at theworld.org. You're listening to PRI.
PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Workers at the Lonmin Platinum Mine in Marikana, South Africa, are celebrating the end of their five-week walkout. The miners won a 22% pay raise, giving them a new salary of up to $1,500 a month. Marikana is where police opened fire on the striking miners last month, killing 34 people. But while the work stoppage there is over, mining strikes elsewhere in South Africa continue. Today, police fired tear gas and rubber bullets near an Anglo-American platinum mine called Amplatz. Reporter Gia Nicolaitis is in South Africa's mining district. She says Amplatz workers aren't backing down. I've just spoken to one of the police officers who who was there uh, earlier today. And what they've done is they've arrested 22 of those miners, four of them for carrying very dangerous weapons, others for public violence. They tried to set alight a vehicle. But they, at this stage, are determined to keep on because the situation at the Marikana mine has turned out uh, in a favorable position for those particular workers. Now, as we mentioned, uh, the new wage will be about $1,500 a month. How does that compare to salaries in general in South Africa and um, to what the miners were making? Most teachers uh, and nurses do not earn what these particular miners do, but they believe it's in their right to have this type of money because they have a high-risk job. Many of them are underground for most part of the day, drilling, using explosives, and they, they believe that, that they need a higher salary. What was also interesting from the London bosses here is that they've given them an additional 2,000 rand once-off payment if they agree to the wage agreement and return to work tomorrow morning. Now, it it sounds like the miners in this case and the mining union there uh, got themselves a, a pretty good deal. What is the clout in general, do you know, of the miners' unions in South Africa? And, and what's the importance of the industry there? There are two major unions, mining unions, in this particular district, and that is NUM and AMKU. And uh, they have been pointing fingers uh, at each other from the start of this illegal action, blaming each other for stealing, you know, members and trying to recruit more members to each particular union. This striking group decided to distance themselves from both unions and represent themselves in this matter. So they were embarking on the strike action uh, led by their own chosen leaders. They were marching to various shafts under the guidance of these leaders. And those particular leaders represented them in the wage negotiations. Well, that suggests then that the industry is pretty powerful and pretty uh, important. The unions, maybe not so much. It's really a concern for the government at this stage, because at least when they were part of a union, things were more structured in terms of them fighting for higher wages. Now it's a situation of what the government calls lawlessness, because um, they, they are just embarking on these illegal strikes, marching, carrying dangerous weapons. And every one of them now looking at the Marikana miners and saying, if they manage to get a 22% wage hike, what is stopping us from doing that? And we can do it on our own. We don't need the union leaders. Gia Nicolaitis is a reporter for Eyewitness News in South Africa. She's in South Africa's Marikana Mining District. Gia, thank you so much. Thank you. Finally today, when U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens died last week in Libya, one detail about his life struck us. 
He was one of those relatively rare ambassadors who had volunteered in the Peace Corps, and that made a difference in the kind of diplomat Stevens was. The world's marker Werman, who also served in the Peace Corps, tracked down one of the other volunteers Chris Stevens served with. From 1983 to 85, Chris Stevens taught English as a second language in Morocco. He was posted to a village in the Atlas Mountains. He struck me at that time as, you know, sort of California clean cut <laughs> with a button-down shirt and khakis and a, and a big smile. And, um, and we all were so young. We were 23. That's Ami Bishop. She also taught ESL in Morocco. And she and Chris became good friends. So much so that our Peace Corps director thought that we had begun dating, and that's why he posted us in neighboring villages. He thought he was doing us a favor, and he was, in fact, just not the kind of favor he thought he was doing. <laughs> but in his village of Wawizert, Chris Stevens surrounded himself with Moroccan friends. He learned Arabic fluently and picked up Berber, the language in many parts of Morocco. The stories that came out after Stevens died in the U.S. mission in Benghazi, like how he frequented the same fast food joints as the Libyans, those stories, says Ami Bishop, were also part of Chris's lore as a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco. In Wawizert, Chris's local watering hole literally was a watering hole, the hamem, or public bath. It was actually a, a great way for him to meet members of the of the community, of the village, students, teachers, people that he lived near. Um, he made his mistakes as well. He got the hours mixed up one time and accidentally walked in on the, on the women's uh, hamem hours, uh, much to his embarrassment. But, um, but I think that almost further endeared him to, um, to people there because he, you know, he was able to laugh at himself. And we spent a lot of time um, recounting our various cultural faux pas. That's the thing about Peace Corps, though. As a volunteer, you are bound to step in it culturally from time to time. And some volunteers learn a lot after stepping in it. Part of that comes from intensive training before you get sent out to your site for two years. But some of that adaptation also is embedded in certain volunteers. Ami Bishop remembers that Chris Stevens went to Morocco fully open to the experience and ready to step in it. He had a lot of joy about being where he was and and wanting to learn everything he could about Moroccan culture and language. And, and people felt that. And he also didn't come with any judgment. I think that one of the things that, that the Peace Corps does for you is you really have to meet people where they are. You have to leave behind a lot of the social conventions and things that you've you've grown up with in your own culture to really adapt and learn um, the ways of where you are. And he he was fully ready to do that, which which meant a complete immersion into um, into the lives of, of people there. As some have pointed out, Chris Stevens carried that immersion into his career in the Foreign Service. And maybe it was that willingness to hang with the Libyans that made him vulnerable. Ami Bishop believes, though, that U.S. diplomacy should not pull back from that impulse to connect because Chris Stevens died in Benghazi. Quite the opposite, she says. What I would say, I guess, to the State Department is that, you know, you need more people like Chris. You need more people who are who are culturally competent, who are linguistically fluent, who are willing to engage because... If you don't find the balance, then you become out of touch and you become isolated. And I think Chris knew that, and I think he, he fought against that. For The World, I'm Marco Werman. 
Ami Bishop shared some of her pictures of Chris Stevens from those Peace Corps years in Morocco. You can see them at theworld.org. And by the way, Bishop and Stevens were surrounded by a lot of local Berber music in the Atlas Mountains. But Bishop told Marco that the Peace Corps volunteers who were in Morocco in the mid-'80s, musically, they all associate their time with the Talking Heads. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for listening. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. You may find yourself in another part of the world. You may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. You may find yourself in a beautiful house. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org PRI Public Radio International